Good morning, podcast listeners, or good afternoon, depending on when you're listening. Um, I debated my art and with this podcast how much to share, and I've just experienced a tragedy. Uh, My ex-fiance passed away last week. And this podcast is about story, and uh, and I want to share her story. Her name is Caroline Holly. She was born in Mississippi and grew up in New Iberia, Cajun country. I think that was right where they make Tabasco sauce, and it was a vibrant time after the, it was kind of in the 60s, 50s, 60s, where they grew a lot of sugar cane and, and, but a very isolated place. And a lot of the bayou swamp. She played, swung from the vines, uh, fell and broke a lot of limbs, fell in a well, but just such a bucolic childhood and, and went to Catholic schools and that really changed her and put her on an educationary tract. Uh, her father left the family and created another family and they were left with economic hardship and, and um, that can really have an effect on a person and, and a family. She started working as a nurse and really defied her mother to go to school. She became a geologist and got a job with Shell Oil in Bakersfield. And I just respected her and I respect women so much that can really, you know, kick ass and take names that are driven and that are educated and smart. She came up here to the Central Coast, um, and she was an entrepreneur. She bought Central Coast Bride and did bridal shows and produced a magazine. I think it's still being published today, and she sold the business, but really created something from nothing, and that really attracted me to her. She also owned the Kaleidoscope Inn in Napomo, and many people have that are listening probably went to some weddings there and met Caroline. We got engaged, and it didn't quite. We got into COVID, and and it didn't, you know, quite work out as far as going on that path. But we still stayed close. She was hilarious and had some great friends. So I just want to give it up to Caroline and we're going to, you know, people are getting together and and kind of remembering her, but just one, one story. Um, She, and it really talks about uh, the risk to women. Uh, She had breast cancer and then her treatment resulted in uh, heart cancer, a very rare heart cancer. And, and she was getting great medical care. She, uh, she was 
getting her care in Houston and really benefited from Obamacare and really got excellent treatment. But the cancer eventually took her life. So I just want to appreciate her and share her story. And um, so let's give it up for Caroline. Hello, you've reached another episode of the Cowboy Jeff and Andy podcast. Today, we focus on Veterans Day with my interview of Andrew Hurst, a veteran. So it will be a great show. Stay tuned. I am here with Andrew Hurst, and this is our special Veterans Day podcast. Good afternoon, Andrew. Hi. Now, you are kind of my doppelganger because uh, we do improv together, and we're the two Andys. Yep. It's like we even have birthdays like within a week of each other. Let's give it up to the Scorpios. <laughs> Now, this program is about Veterans Day, and um, it is on November 11th, which is the 11th month and the 11th day and the 11th hour when the armistice was signed for World War I. Yep, that is, that's the start. And... And you also talked about the difference between Veterans Day and Memorial Day. Can you uh, illuminate us on that? Uh, yeah. So a lot of people, the different, there isn't a difference. You know, it's just a day off of work. But Memorial Day is for remembering those who have, have died, you know, who served and died or died in service. While Veterans Day, it's, you know, in November is for anyone who has served. You know, it's, it's a distinction that can ruffle feathers occasionally. So, Andrew, you're one of the people that I've met that has served in the military. And really, these days, not a lot of people serve if you look at, you look at it statistically. Uh, yeah, I think when I joined, the figure I was told was like less than a percent uh, end up uh, joining. And I think a lot of that has to do with just, you know, different economic conditions and you know, there, there's not as much of a driving pull anymore towards it. Uh, so can you talk about what was your, why did you decide to serve? Uh, I joined because I didn't like making choices. Okay. And so I made one choice to not have to make another for four years or so. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, 
and a, a lot of the guys I served with, you know, reco- there's uh, came from places where they didn't have a lot of opportunity. And that was the big draw still. And I think is probably still, you know, years later, the draw of, you know, people need work, health care, money for school, what have you. And those are the, the incentives that have been drawing people in. I heard uh, someone talk about, I guess she was in uh, in the South. And they were talking about a volunteer army, but she was saying that it wasn't at her high school, the recruiters were there full time and that it was almost, it was such pressure um, in certain areas to join. Uh, I mean, it, there's definitely more pressure depending on like the geopolitics of the day. Cause like I joined in 2007. So that's, I was part of the surge, what's called the surge. Uh, and they would waver just about anybody into the service. Uh, so like if you had a pulse and didn't have any crazy medical condition, you know, uh, like diabetes or something that would very obviously disqualify you, uh, and couldn't be worked around, uh, they would sign people up. And, um, you were talking about the surge. Was that the surge in Iraq? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's you know, this the search in Iraq, but it's also just I think with that time period of like two thousand seven, eight where there was just a big draw to try and get as many troops into uh Iraq and Afghanistan as possible. You know, because we'd been in both of those theaters for several years and without making a lot of uh continued progress. And so what was, you went to basic training. What was that like? And where did you do your basic training? Uh, I went to basic training in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. It's not my favorite place. Uh, no, it's, it was just a very harsh, very, very much. Uh, you grew up real fast. Cause I was, you know, not e- like I was just 18 and I was, I was doing like grown up things all of a sudden, like it, the, the theory of what was going on had, had tapered away and I was stuck with some, the reality of the situation I signed up for. And it was, it was a shock. Yeah. I mean, it, getting yelled at right at three o'clock in the morning when you're getting woken up is, is a shock. And then like Missouri too, it was like, it was I was there from February to June and like you can experience all four seasons in a day. Oh my gosh. Like it'll wow. snow in the morning uh-huh. and then by, by dinner time it's 90 degrees. And it's like, I, how do you dress around that? It's like, I, I grew up in California here in California. Like we We're have not used to wearing pants. We have two seasons, hot and occasionally damp. Like that's it. Right. Uh, but like it, you know, like 19 weeks of training from, and that includes basic training and my advanced training, which, uh, for my job as military police was rolled into one continual stretch. So I, with no break in between, because, uh, some jobs it's more broken up. Uh, but you know, you have uh, one station unit training, which, it is considered like one program all the way through the same people, same instructors from start to finish. And so you, uh, how does it, you said you ended up in the military police. How did you kind of get steered into that? 
uh, I chose that. So at the at the time, right? Things might have changed since I did all my contract work. Uh, the army was the only uh, one of the services where you could specifically choose the job you were signing up for. Mm-hmm. So, like in the the Air Force, you could give them like a wish list of here are the things that I would like. But the needs of the service dictated where they sent you. If they needed a, a mechanic and that's on the list, guess what? You're a mechanic now. Uh-huh. Uh, well, the army, it's like that's part of your contract is like I wanted to be military police. Uh, and a lot of that, too, is also based on the uh, the service battery test, the ASVAB. You know, it's the standardized test. Oh, where... you take a standardized test to show your aptitude in different areas? Right. So it's like math and critical thinking skills and uh-huh. all these things are, you know, and then they give you like a a score and that very sort of standardized test approach to things. And that factors into like, you need a score, a certain score for a certain job, depending on what it is. Uh, but I chose, and I, I chose, so I chose military police and that was, do you need a good aptitude to do that? Uh, like middling. Uh-huh. Uh, and I chose it because that's what my father had been drafted into for Korea. Oh my gosh. Uh, and he hated it, and uh, that should have been a clue, but it wasn't. Uh, but that that was why I chose, you know, military police over any number of other things. I had scored fairly high on the test, so I had a lot of options. Mm-hmm. And you were in the Army, and you went to Iraq. Yep. I was, I deployed on November 11th, 2007. On, vet- on Veterans yeah, Day. I became a veteran on Veterans Day. And then that deployment ended and we came back on January 31st, 2009. So it was like 13 months, give or take. And did you have other deployments? Uh, no. Uh, uh, the way my contract worked out and the way I sort of navigated things. Because I, I did that deployment straight out of uh, training. Like I showed up to the unit in July and we deployed that November. Uh, we got back. I signed up for a new school to actually reclass into explosive ordnance disposal, like bomb squad stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, and that class didn't start until the next year. And then in the course of taking, you know, being in that class, in that training, my co- I, I let my contract expire. What do you mean by contract? Uh, it's you sign a contract with, you know, the military service where it says you are working for us from this day to this day. Like you, you can't quit functionally. Like not like a normal job, right? You can't put in your 30 days notice. And, like, and so that's a four year commitment or uh, it, it depends on what you negotiate with your recruiter or with the retention if you're already in. And uh, so I signed up for a four year contract and got a $5,000 sign up bonus. Uh-huh. Uh, and that guaranteed me the, the slot in the school, the slot in the military police school. So if I would have failed out of that, they could have re-signed me to something else without violating their the contract. Uh, it, or I could have negotiated, uh, you know, a time and a duty station. But it's like you get one incentive to really ask for uh, functionally at the time. Unless you're playing hardball and going into something where they need a critical skill that you have. Uh, where you're... You know, you're more incentivized to, to try and, or they're more incentivized to try and get you. Now, can you tell me wh- where you were in Iraq? And can you just tell me a little bit of your experience? Uh, yeah. So I was in uh, Al-Qut, which is the Wasit province of Iraq. So it's southeast of 
Baghdad, some amount of distance. Uh, but it's like Al-Qut, Numenia, Al-Hay are all in the, the general vicinity. And that was our area of responsibility. And uh, we deployed as a company, which is a little unusual uh, because that we were uh, like the only U.S. forces on the base we were at because it was run by the Polish. The Guatemalan army had uh, a unit there doing missions. Uh, the when We got there. Base security was done by the Georgian army, like uh, like Russia-ish Jordan, not Peach Georgia. Uh-huh. Yes. Other Georgia. Yeah. Uh, geography is hard for people. Uh, and then they were supplanted by private contractors later from, uh, I can't remember where they're from. It, it'll come to me later, maybe. But it, so it's just because that was the same time that like conflict between Georgia and Russia was happening. And so all their troops left and were replaced by somebody else. And is there a certain, you had mentioned that a lot of soldiers come from certain states that maybe there are certain states that maybe draw more recruits. I mean, and of course, you're also in this environment with people from all over the United States. Right. Uh, this is purely anecdotal. Like, I don't have numbers. I just have, like, what I saw in my experience. But there was a lot of, like, Ohioan and Midwestern uh, people that, that seemed to be more weighted towards them than other states where you might think of being more more traditionally military oriented you know like so it was just a weird happenstance it might have just been my unit it might have just been the people i was around but a lot that, of people from ohio yeah like uh, for a state that i don't think of all that often like having like a you know 30 people out of 300 that's 10 percent representation uh-huh. it's a lot yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um why it seems like the military really creates very concern this conservatism and I, I wonder why that is and and do you share that kind of conservative military stereotype <laughs> oh lordy no uh i i no uh yet Yes, they do. The military very much lends itself to that sort of ideology, and it sort of reinforces that. And I think a lot of that has to do with just like the nature of being in danger, because a lot of it's like pushing uh, marriages, like building a family. Right? That's uh-huh. the That's army a... very much, or the military in, in general very much pushes that, because like you know, you're going out tomorrow. You might not come back. Have you had kids yet? Oh my like, gosh! Yeah, you know, in that same sort of that crosses over into like religion too, right? Like, you know, the very famous expression like "there are no atheists in foxholes." Uh-huh. Like, oh, religion, yeah. Uh-huh. You know, like the first time I saw combat, we got back and everyone had to go see a chaplain. I have never gone to church. It's not been my thing. I wasn't raised in that sort of environment. So why are you sending me to see a chaplain? go send me to see a therapist if you want my mental health to be evaluated for doing, you know, things. Uh, it's, but it is that sort of weird sort of conservative push. It doesn't matter where you are, like what, which, what religion doesn't matter, but that you have religion is a kind of a big deal. Uh, though never stated outright, of course, because that gets into trouble. But you're like incentivized, like even in basic training, uh, 
Sundays you were allowed to go to church, and if you weren't going to church, you were put on a week uh, a work detail. Oh, interesting. So a lot of people went to church because who wants to scrub floors? You can get a, get a little singing in, like ex yeah, do extra work. Like uh, no, let's not. And so, and it's a way to help. Like I ended up, you know, going to services with a guy who needed a buddy to go with because the buddy system is important in the military. Like everyone has. Oh, a buddy. I didn't know that. It's accountability because, like, if one person goes missing, someone's supposed to be responsible. Someone else should be with him, right? Uh-huh. You go send two people away to go do something. You know, and you're less likely to get, you know, taken, kidnapped, uh, what have you. Uh-huh. You know, and just allows for accountability, right? Because uh, there's also a voice say, maybe this is a bad idea. <laughs> oh yeah, that's that's probably a good voice to have. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a very strange culture to live in and like i was deployed and that's the first time i voted because i again i had just turned 18 yeah uh so i voted for uh the first time first time in election full in 2008 right and that was uh that was uh obama Obama mccain Uh obama mccain and it's very surreal to be like Voting is supposed to be private. It's done on a, whatever your state of residence is, is how you vote. So, like, being from California, I voted through uh, a mail-in ballot with all the California things. Uh, it, but it's still, you talk about politics. And, like, Big Brother's always sort of watching in this way. Because you're... And you're not really supposed to be political. But I know military that military people that I know, they're very astute in politics because it really affects they're them and so i'm sure there's a lot of political talk but you're also supposed to not be political yeah and voting is generally supposed to be a a private affair most Uh of the time between you and the ballot box yes but that wasn't in practice always the case so like i i caught a little bit of flack for for voting blue in 2008 which is very counter to the culture I was steeping in. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, it, some of it was good spirit and some of it was, you know, politics. But it was hard. Like, I had a hard time voting for, you know, uh, a pro-war party while at war. Yes. <laughs> like, the direct consequence of that stood out to me. Self-interest. Yeah. Like, I found out not a fan of getting shot at. Not, not really something I want more people to take a part of. So you were in charge of training. You did training of Iraqi security. Was that part of your... Yeah, part of uh, what my unit did was we went out to uh, police stations in the, the region, the province, and would train uh, Iraqi police and how to do policing. Uh, because part of the invasion part of what we did there was we took everyone out of power who had those jobs already so we're trying to build police stations and government from the ground up and my small part of that was help to teaching like basic policing or being a part of the teams that taught basic policing because i didn't myself do any of the teaching mm-hmm. uh and like these things would be like how to take fingerprints with a newspaper and tape and then mail that to 
you know, some office, some place to be processed for fingerprinting and things like that. And can you tell me some of the, the combat that you saw? Uh, I mean, the majority of the combat I saw was being like rocket mortar attacks uh, at night. So I had the luck, the actual luck to uh, our living arrangement on post was in uh, reinforced aircraft bunkers. Because uh, the base that we were, were operating out of was an old Iraqi air base. And so we were living in concrete air air bunkers. So a lot of other service members lived in uh, like con- converted containers. So like mortar attacks and rocket attacks are very a very different experience in that sort of environment. Because you have to like leave your your little your room and go to a concrete you know shelter as these mortars are coming in so you know you can not get hurt but if i'm living if i'm already living in a giant feet thick concrete bunker i got to sleep through the night on those nights like people would come by check to make sure we're inside and that was the extent of it it was not as big a deal and uh so you were traveling out in the country i guess the uh the IEDs were, was that a risk at that time? Uh, IEDs are always uh, a risk. Uh, Vehicle-borne IEDs, however, at the at the time in the place where I was, was not. So we just had, so like car bombs weren't as much a risk, but. Why things, was that? I know it was a risk earlier, or uh, maybe that's, I'm thinking it, about Afghanistan. It was very much like regional at the time. Uh-huh. So you know, the province that I was at just, it wasn't wasn't something that the the local militias used so it was something that like we we had to be wary of but i never saw that type of experience happen i saw ieds and i have been shot at in you know the the sort of normal expectations around that but like vehicle borne stuff we still had security about but i never actually saw that type of uh tragedy unfold and you work with local interpreters? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, local is sort of a uh, generalization. We, they were Iraqi interpreters, but they might not be from the same province or region because uh, they wanted to work in places where their identity wouldn't be known, right? Because some people... Oh, okay. And even then, they would be wearing like baklavas like face masks to conceal their identity because that is a very much a risk for them because if they find out who they are then maybe their families are in danger and there are repercussions and so we had to be very careful with with that aspect of it too and in each interpreter also had their own personality and you know you could Maybe you can trust this one, but maybe this one gives you a vibe. And it's all very scary when you're in it, right? Because you don't, we don't know who we can trust at any given moment because we might be training this police Monday and then he might be shooting at us Tuesday. Well, I know that, I mean, there were incidents where in these training bases where the, I mean, terrorists would uh, infiltrate and, and I think there was a, an incident where they, you know, they, they're part of the security and then they're killing Americans. Yeah. I it's mean, risky. 
part of what we did, part of our the greater mission is teaching these some of these people how to shoot. That is not exactly within our own self-interest at a certain point. Because, uh-huh. like, how if we teach them to be very good shots, there is a chance that we're going to be their next target, you know? And, again, we there's not a lot of trust in this relationship because, you know, our people will take inventories of, like, their armory. And then the next time we come by, you know, things would be missing. It, like RPGs would be missing out of this police armory. It's like, that's not good news. They mm-hmm. had no accounting for where this went. It just disappeared one day. Like these things don't walk away on their own. <laughs> so what in, in hindsight, what can you just, what is your reflection on the whole Iraqi effort? What did we get out of it? And, and just your perspective. That is such a tricky question because, like, it, my understanding of the geopolitics is we didn't get a lot out of it and we maybe caused more harm uh, overall. Because, you know, we pulled out or pulled back, and then you see things like ISIS pop up into that power vacuum. Uh, all the local militias we were fighting were still present. Like, it's really hard to stick a We One sticker onto anything. And then also, like, with a little bit of time and perspective, I can look back and some of the things. Uh, and, like, so as, as a foreign military working inside an area, if we find someone who has done something and we take them, that's all government sanctioned. It's all good and legal. It's also kidnapping. If I if someone kicks down your door in the middle of the night, puts you on flex cuffs, screaming in a language you don't understand, and then disappears you for week, days, weeks, months, years, like that is kind of terrorism in its own right. And so, like I I try to not characterize things like that, which is, you know, because it, it's all a matter of perspective. You know, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. You know, but it's a real tricky thing to sort of get into. Uh, and it carries a little bit of guilt because it's, I mean, stuff like that's what keeps me up at night some nights. You know. So how do you think, I mean, obviously you went in the military um, at a young age. Um, how, do you, how do you think that your service changed you? Uh, I mean, I, I grew up real fast. I sort of had to it taught me how to assimilate with sort of different types of people because i can work with people that i don't necessarily agree with and that is something that is less common nowadays at least that i've seen that's a we talk about that a lot in the schools about how can you disagree respectfully and and uh it seems like a something that's really needed right now in our politics so you say you learn just to get along with different types of people. Right. It, just being able to sort of have that moment of sort of assessing, you know, is this co- like, we don't agree on this, but is that conversation relevant to what we're trying to do? Right. Cause how you vote doesn't matter if we're trying to build a house, right? Like it's the job is one thing and your thoughts on it are another. It's 
like if we can work together with we can accomplish the goal that's all that matters in the long run whatever that goal is you know we can respectfully disagree about the theory and the politics of it all but got to do the work do you think you came out with um i mean with other with issues you talked about staying keeping up at night i mean do you feel you did you come back with any ptsd or other lasting effects i mean it's it's real hard to not i mean yeah. you know you look at the statistics of like P, like ptsd is very very common not just in the military but in like policing in any sort of trauma that's a thing so like my quirks are like i'm real bad about potholes and trash in the road because for a year every you know that cooler that has been at the side of the freeway on your way to work every day you know oh well it has shifted you're seeing a different side of the day well maybe someone put a bomb in it now you know it's like i don't want to hit that pothole because there might be a mine in it because i can't see what's in it and it's like so those are some like the practical quirks right those are that affects directly how i'm driving and it sometimes means i'm not the best driver <laughs> because i i act in ways that other people don't because you don't maybe think about your pothole or you know, the igloo cooler you're seeing, right? Because it's just trash on the road, right? Like, who cares? But, like, that, there's something primal in me that, like, screams about that. I just don't... I, I think with all that we know about the brain, you know, to stick, stick people in a situation where they're under that kind of stress for prolonged periods of time, I just think we know a lot more now that that really affects people. I mean, we've known a lot about, I mean, we've, we've known about PTSD for decades. Since the Greeks. Yeah. We've called it different things, you know, war wariness, shell shock. I think in World War II, they just drank after the war. A lot of, uh, yeah, tragedy. Yeah. But I mean, that's because there was no support for that. We're finally starting to get inklings of, of, uh, support because, uh, you know, mental health is now being like destigmatized on like a cultural level just not even within like the the military and veterans but just society as a whole is taking a more yes. open approach to it but when you look at like the statistics within like the the military and veteran community i think the the published stats or is like 22 soldiers and veterans a day like take their own lives that's for such a small population that means i've i've known a lot of people who have have taken that route and like that that haunts me more than anything else just the after effects of your friends yeah like it you know getting yourself into that into that mindset where that's what makes sense just I, you know it, it breaks your heart you know it's it's i want to understand how they got there and why are there so many homeless vets uh I mean, that is a lot to do with like broken promises. Uh, so you have, you know, this lack of like mental health support, right? This PTSD, uh, these types of issues that arise that, again, we're only just now starting to, to accept. So a lot of these, you're talking like the nom generation, right? Comes back and they don't get that support. They they get everything but support or nothing but like they're not getting any support at all. And so they, you know, they go and they drink, they, 
you know, maybe they do drugs, they have anger issues, they they can't keep down a job because they're they're getting triggered and they don't know why. Well, they know why, but they they can't manage why. So they can't keep a job, they can't keep a house, a house. you know, their family falls apart and they end up on the streets. And that's, you know, the sad reality for, for that whole segment of society. And then we take away, you know, I mean, the, the joke within the veteran community is the VA is the second chance for the government to get you. Because, you know, if you're having a crisis, you can try and get help from them, but it can sometimes take you know, weeks to get an appointment, months. I know they've made changes. Uh, they've kind of let you go to other doctors uh, outside of the VA centers. I mean, is it, has it gotten better? Uh, I mean, in the the 10 years that I've had that had to experience it, it has gotten better, but it, that also has to do with them having to, to grow to serve more people because for the long time, the VA wasn't really having to support a new generation, right? They were dealing with, you know, World War II vets that were dying off, the Korea vets, you know, and Nam vets. And they, you know, and now you have this abrupt resurgence of young people who have problems and no one is, there was no funding for that. There was no support for that. And they're still trying to catch up. Yeah, I don't think that's... I mean, I remember after 9-11, um, you know, there was a lot of fervor to go in. and But we don't think about uh, the the long-term costs. I mean, and when they talk about the cost of the war, I mean, this is a whole, this is years and years of costs related to an action that happened in the early 2000s. Right. And I mean, to be fair, they should not be surprised that the government is uh, slow to react to the needs of veterans because the, the the U.S. government has a long history of breaking promises to veterans. You know, all the way back to after World War One, after the Civil War, I think even after the Revolutionary War, there were promises being broken to the people who fought for that government. So it it's you know an, the same song in a new key. Like it's not new. It should be expected, but, you know, you're signing up 18-year-olds who don't have that level of understanding, right? It's, you're, it, you're, you're exploiting a population, and I, you know, because they don't know, you don't know what you're signing up for. Like, you're signing up for an idea, but the practicality is wildly different, you know, because no one thinks they're the one who's going to get shot, right? And, and they market it, you... I mean, you might die, but you're going to be a hero. I mean, that the hero, the heroism is that's a mar- that's what they market and promote. Oh yeah, everyone's a hero. Be the hero. You know, uh, the few, the proud, the Marines. You know, uh, Army Strong, or uh, Army of One, which is a weird take for a slogan. <laughs> yes, that. Yeah, it seems <laughs> but it little... was for a time. Uh-huh. Uh huh. It's it's selling you, you know, the idea of you can be the hero, you can be the 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 star of the movie, right? That's that's what they they play at, you know. That's when you look at the the recruitment videos, when you look at the sort of the propaganda of things. Even when you look at movies, you know, like Top Gun is a great recruiting tool. You know, I remember uh, when I saw Top Gun in Santa Maria and. 
at the very end, some guy jumped up and said, go America. And just a spontaneous action, you know, it yeah. was a very, uh, if you're an 18 year old right out of, uh, high school and you go and watch Top Gun for the first time, you want to join the Navy. Oh, yeah. You want to go uh, be an aviator. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and that, that's not an accident, <laughs> you know, uh, but then you, then you sign up, then you end up there and it's, it's a whole different monster, you know, you know, the big green weenies out to get you because you become a number. You don't, you're no longer an individual when you're in the military, right? Because that's an army can't be fought by individuals. It's really interesting that, you know, we have this big push and pull with the individual versus the collective. And we are a very individualistic society, but the military is a very collectivist society. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. They even give you free health care. <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah. I mean, if free is maybe not the right word. Maybe but some child care. They probably included. have some good child care, too. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, it's, you know that reality sort of it doesn't creep up it hits you all at once because like you know you're get you're walking through like the first couple little bits of paperwork you have to do it's like oh yeah this is this is fine i've learned my social security number now and then all of a sudden like you're getting your head shaved you're in clothes you're getting all sorts of shots done people are yelling screaming at you people are crying and you go through the this training and it also teaches you how to not see yourself as a person and how to not see the person across from you as a person. You know, uh, we shoot, I trained on, uh, pop-up targets at the rifle range. We called them Ivans. They were, you know, plastic and shaped like, you know, uh, a a little soldier, right? Because that's that old, uh, cold war era terminology sinking through. Uh, we didn't call refer to the local population when we we're, uh, you know, when I was deployed. Anyone who was not working with us was like a haji, right? We we turned a, a religious term for them for like which means pilgrim, someone who's made the hajj, right? Someone who's been to Mecca and come back. Uh, that becomes like my generation's like Charlie. It's a like a derogative term. It's dehumanized. Yeah, it's it's othering. You know, and that's and that's how you see like whole populations. Uh that's that that has its own set of repercussions because you're feeding into this sort of like I institutionalized racism in a way. You know, whether it's you know whatever the nationalities, whatever the culture is that you're talking about, whether it's Russian or Middle Eastern or whatever the the crisis of the month is. Uh it's making them not be people, you know, and that that's a tale as old as time, right? That's a, that's something militaries have done for forever. You know, we're, Sparta, yeah. I mean, you know, the hunt. You know, we're talking about Germans as the Hun, or you know, Johnny Reb, or you know, Red, you know, Lobsterbacks. Like it's finding a term to make them not seem human, not seem equivalent, right? And it that has. You know, what do you do with those veterans once they leave that service, though? Because you can't put that toothpaste back in the tube. It's real hard. It You have to work at sort of seeing people as people again if you don't come to it on your own. And not everyone does. 
we were talking about the burn pits. Um, and I know John Stewart had done a lot of advocacy and others. Um, did you have burn pits? Did you use them in Iraq? Uh, we used them a little bit. By the time, like, I, they were in use. I did not myself ever uh, maintain one. Uh, by the time I was there, they were, uh, con like civilian contractors were running, uh, things like that, things like the porta potties and, and, and waste disposal, but the smoke was still present. And like, we would have like, we would burn things in barrels occasionally, uh, mostly when we were trying to like leave to come, like we can't, t we can't pack everything with us. So we've got to burn stuff. Uh, so I, so we would burn things like extra ammunition, uh, we would burn uniforms we didn't want to take back with us. Anything that could burn, like battery, you know, because it's all weight. It all costs somebody something to, to ship. And if you don't need it, we don't want to leave it behind. Like, the next guy doesn't need it either. So it had, you know, so it gets burned. Well, and, and so many people suffered health effects. And it just seemed, we had this discussion about, well, that's what, you signed up for is to be exposed to prolonged toxic. I mean, it was like, what is responsible behavior on the military? To, it just seems so irresponsible to burn batteries and just pour jet fuel on them. Cause you know, a lot of people were going to be messed up by it. But then the army's argument would be, this is what you signed up for. It's the needs of the service. You know, uh, I mean, it's not a new, again, it's, it's a, the same song that we've heard before. Cause you know, we have a whole slew of Vietnam era veterans who got doused with agent orange and have a whole bunch of problems with that, who no one saw anything coming. Like, uh, but they knew, yeah, their tests were done, but it was the instant gratification for the mission, right? It's, I need this to happen right now and I will deal with the consequences later. And that is sort of that. That's how the military works, though. You know, bomb this bridge now, and then we'll rebuild it later when we need it. You know, and it's it's a way to get things done. But but then yeah, it's 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 you're you're looking at it in the moment, and and the future is the future. It's not it's not really a concern. Yeah. You know, that's a tomorrow problem, right? Like, you know, I need my mission today is to, you know, keep these people from crossing this bridge. Well, I'm just going to blow the bridge up. Problem right. solved. Right. Well, oh, tomorrow I've got to cross that bridge. Well, I didn't know that yesterday. Now I have this whole logistical nightmare of trying to figure out how to solve, you know, this problem that I myself created. You know, and that's the nature of things because that... Because we, one of the values of why our military is so good sometimes is because we allow people lower, like, not all of the decisions get made at the top. Like, the goal might be set by the top. Like, we need to go, you know, cross this bridge. The method of how you do it is sometimes delineated down to the people, two people closer to that point, right? Though never the, the grunt who actually has to touch the bridge. But, you know, his... You know, his captain, his company, you know, his company does, might determine how he does it. And so it's never the one who makes the choice, you know, doesn't necessarily have to 
feel the consequence, right? No one who decided to dump Agent Orange is the one who got dumped on. No, you know. Oh, wow, yeah. The people who decided to use burn pits and that that was the best option, those aren't really the ones who are suffering from the effects of it. Mm-hmm. You know, the, you know, just like uh, the big thing right now, or another, yet another thing right now is like the uh, 3M lawsuit with the earplugs, right? Because 3M provided a bunch of uh, earplugs to the military saying that they worked uh, to their to a standard and it turns out they didn't and a lot of people have hearing damage because they use the earplugs and got hearing damage and there's lawsuits and things uh, but it's the consequences what like unintended consequences yeah. i just think looking at that whole era um i think that osama bin laden won in a way because he took our treasure and um, I just wanted your perspective on Israel and are they, do you believe that they're creating our, uh, you know, not learning from America's mistakes? And what do you think about the whole Israeli um, Hamas war that's going on right now? So my understanding of the situation, my, my opinion of the situation is that these, we're not talking about two groups, we're talking about four groups, right? We're talking about the Zionists and Israel and Hamas and the Palestinians. You know, not all squares are rectangles, or not all rectangles are squares. Uh, so, you know, you've got factions within, you know, the greater population who are driving certain agendas and things, and that's causing, and, that, and that's what's causing your issue. Your, your, your Joe Blow on either side just wants to be left alone. You know, because I don't think anyone really, you know, just wants what's and what's what's theirs and what they think is theirs, and that is the crux of the problem, which goes back to you know, the end of World War One and how this sort of situation came about in the first place. Because everything is a reaction to something else, like everything is built on a, a foundation before it, right? So, you know, the issue in the Middle East is based on the lines being drawn at the end of uh, World War One and the fall of the Ottoman Empire by the British and the French. And that inflames the situation because there's so many things going on without treating the people there, you know, in these countries, in these areas, like people that have thoughts and feelings of their own, traditions of their own. You know, uh, Kurdistan under the Ottoman Empire was its own autonomous region. Uh, after World War One, when the West cut it up, or West cut up the, the region, you know, the Kurds are now split between three or four different countries, and they're a minority in all of them, and they get treated badly and are fighting all of those different governments now instead of just being given what was already theirs. You know, and that's, that is a theme throughout the whole region, not just Israel and Palestine. It just... There are extra complications with Israel and Palestine of you've got people from two very different uh, religions, backgrounds, ideologies, both thinking that they are 100% in the right and unwilling to really compromise with each other because, you know, they both they both think that they're they have all of the right to be there. And they're both right and they're both wrong in that regard, right? Depending on 
who you talk to and what you think and you know do i agree with the methodologies being used by either side no but i understand how we got i can see how we've got here right because if you don't acknowledge a voice for long enough it gets louder and louder and occasionally will get you know gets more and more violent until it's it's heard and it's understood and that is you know very sort of vaguely how you know uh that has played out with Hamas, right you know you become more violent because you want to be seen because you're not being heard they were concerned about saudi arabia making uh encro- making approaching israel to for recognition and and the hamas was like afraid that the arab world would leave them behind yeah and then you know they're also being you know courted by like iran who has its own set of motives for trying to inflame the region beyond just you know the local politics you know because it's another way to stick it to the u.s to to try and assert itself itself on that world stage right because if it can back palestine then it became becomes a little bit more legitimate on the world stage itself right it can give the u.s a black eye and that is when you're not friends with the u.s that is kind of the goal that is how you legitimize yourself mm-hmm. right you know uh anytime a a a foreign government really wants to to assert itself it does something to the u.s and that's oh, what catches yeah. the headline you know that's that's what gets the the recognition right you know it's very rarely is it the the repercut you know the repression unless it's overly bad and negative right uh so it's it's the big being big brother sometimes has a cost you know unfortunately we pay that cost with you know the lives of 18 and 20 year olds across the world because it's not the old men who fight the the war that they ask for yeah it wasn't dick cheney's kids no and that and i to me that israel uh situation it's that urban combat just like it seems like fallujah was one of the you know memorable times during the war when they're doing that type of urban combat and and it just seems it seems so difficult to really kill all the bad guys and then you know you and then you traumatize a population and you create i mean in iraq we you know, we created isis it's uh it'll come back probably well let me tell you a secret you can never kill all the bad guys right because the bad guys have kids yeah and they don't see themselves as bad guys no one is the villain of their own story yes uh and so like this mentality of fighting fire with fire at a certain point is just destruction it's just you're not winning hearts and minds you're not convincing anyone you're more right you know, you can defend yourself to a point, but at a certain point, you're no longer on defense, right? You're, you know, you're, you know, preventing people who aren't fighting you food and water. You know, that's, that becomes an issue. Uh, and so it's, it's a tricky thing to navigate when you're not fighting a uniformed army, though. Because yeah, we've really moved to this asymmetrical warfare. Because it's the only thing to work when you're that works when you're not a superpower. Yeah. You know, if you're the guy with all the guns 
and all the bombs and all the planes and all the tanks, yeah, wearing a uniform's fine. But if you've you and two buddies have a rifle and you know you want to fight the occupier, it doesn't lend you know it doesn't help you to to identify yourself ahead of time. You know because that's not how your goal is going to be met. You know it's you know asymmetric fighting, guerrilla fighting, and that's George Washington. Yeah, that's what we did. I mean, in America, has since its inception been changing how war has been fought, right? Because during the revolutionary time, you know, it was a very gentleman. It had this like gentlemanly air about it, right? Alexander Hamilton and honor and right. Uh, but the U.S. killed that. You know, the whole approach that Washington had was not about that. Like he crossed, you know, what was it, the the Delaware on Christmas to go slit the throats of the German mercenaries. Like that is not like. Like he was doing business and that is sort of the foundation of the American military model is we're here to do a job and it's not our job to figure out the politics of the situation, but it's gotten to the point where it kind of is like, you kind of have to have that awareness of the consequences of your action. Right. You know, one of the things I was taught in training, it was very much hammered into me is, you know, the repercussions of like the Nuremberg trials, right? You know, he who pulls the trigger pays the price. You know, I'm just following orders. Doesn't, doesn't absolve you of anything anymore. Really? Oh yeah. No, you're, if you follow an illegal, immoral or unethical order, you're the one who does it is also, you know, is the one on the hook for it. You know, the guy who told you to do it might also be on the hook, but it's the same idea of like prosecuting a getaway driver, uh, you know, on a bank robbery, right? He didn't do anything. Like all he did was drive. He didn't go into the bank. He didn't do anything, but he still gets the same penalty as the guys who did all the bad stuff. But it's, it's hammered into you. So then it, it puts all of that. It puts another layer of fear onto you is like, the soldier with the rifle with your boots on the ground, right? Cause like, can I justify what I'm doing? And if you can't, that puts you into a, a uncomfortable situation, right? Like, can I articulate why this decision was the right decision at the time with the information I had? And will it, you know, there's this mentality of like, I would rather be, you know, tried by 12 than carried by six. It's like, in it, it's it build it it breeds that sort of machismo, that like overly testosterone sort of mentality. That is uh, not ideal some of the time. So I noticed that you're wearing a band around your wrist, and can you tell me about that? Uh, yeah. So this is a a black metal band, and it has a. Uh, a former uh, team leader of mine on it, and the, the it's a it's a KI, it killed an action bracelet, so it's it's something that I think came about during like the Vietnam era when people would uh, go missing or get killed, and you know people want to remember them, and so they wear uh, a band like this. And sometimes it's like a leather, it, it exactly how like there's not like an official way to do it. But it's just a, a token of like remembrance for someone that 
like meant something to you like uh sergeant creamer was a mentor of mine and uh she was killed after i left the service uh but like days after i left the service so if i would have stayed in i would have been on a similar deployment as her and i could have been like it feeds into like the survivor's guilt of it all a little bit could you tell us more about her uh yeah she was she was uh this great woman she like mentored me when i first got to my unit she was really fun and like lively like uh a great jokester but she also like she cared for the soldiers under her and uh when i left the unit she actually went to go to canine school went and became a canine handler and then uh she was deployed to afghanistan where she was uh killed in a roadside bomb uh and that is all i know about what act like how it happened but as a person like she was always caring she was always cracking jokes she always made sure everyone was okay and like that is what that is the thing i want to remember that's something i want to like hold on to because that is like something we should all hold on to right like make you know especially in these times of strife that we hit you know when things are looking bad and you know the instinct is to make sure i'm okay and not care about others it's like like we can do better it's like we can go out and we can make sure the guy you know to your left and your right are okay you know make sure you know because we're all like we're all in this team together we're all we're all on you know battleship earth so we need to tell you know take care of each other and and in doing that we'll all be okay well, I like that as a as a good message to uh, to end, and um, so I want to thank you so much, and uh, and also uh, Andrew performs with the Central Coast Comedy Theater, and you're on the house one of the house teams now, and and uh, and so we we encourage people to look for you, and uh, what. And also, you do a little stand-up as well. Yeah, when I get around to it. All right. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you for having me. You've reached the end of another Cowboy Jeff and Andy podcast. My special thanks to Andrew Hurst. I am on Facebook at Andy Watson. And we are on Gmail at CowboyJeffAndAndy at gmail.com, all lowercase. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.